Well, good morning, young disciples. It's wonderful to see so many of you here, and I'm glad you're here because today I want to talk about two of my favorite beings, okay? So look up at the screen there. Yes, well, you know, Pebbles is my dog, okay? Uh, it, Pebbles is a rescue, and my wife has fallen in love with Pebbles too, but I found her first, so she's my dog. And I haven't seen her since June 19th because I'm in transition. And they actually gave me a title, Transition Pastor, okay? And that's why there's this new guy up here on Sunday morning talking with you, okay? So I'm a transition pastor, and I want to tell you about my very first parishioner. That's Riley. Riley is a golden retriever, and Riley is about… A, almost 10 times heavier and a lot bigger than Pebbles. And on next Saturday night, Pebbles is going to come and live with Riley and me, and she's going to bring her mom too. <laughs> and we're not sure how that's going to go. It's going to be quite a transition, but Riley's already been through a transition because his people, Pastor Carl, he's Pastor Carl's dog, they're on a road trip right now. They're on vacation. And Riley just, I just showed up and opened the door, and now I live there. <laughs> I'm in transition. Riley is in transition. So we're going through a transition in the life of Grace Commons. And transitions can be a little scary because it, it involves change. And they can also be exciting because there are new opportunities to grow in our faith and to grow in trying out new things with God. So I hope you'll, as you go to your Sunday school now with your teachers, that you will ask them, what are some of the new things that we can try out as we learn to follow Jesus more, more closely? Let me just pray for you as, as you take off. God, thank you for each one of these young disciples. Thank you for their uh, just the beauty of each one, the way you've made them each individually, and that you've given them a life here with family and friends in this summertime in Boulder. We pray that you would bless them now in their time with their teachers, and we pray that you would bless us as we continue our worship. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, you can head out. Well, while the children are going, I, I have to tell you that Riley has all, also become my new exercise accountability partner because I, <laughs> I come up uh, at the crack of dawn and he, he's waiting there showing me it's time to go on a walk. And this is, this is no just quick walk around the block like Pebbles. This is a serious walk and it has to happen at least twice a day or Riley's just not happy. And so. Hopefully, I'll get in shape uh, in the next three weeks. Well, uh, in my ministry career, um, I can look back on really the seminal time, which was when I was a new campus minister, a graduate of college, 22 years old, and I was expected to lead an university chapter at UC Santa Cruz. And first thing they make you do to find out if you can really do this is you have to 
go out and ask people to support you in prayer and financially. And I remember they told me, well, your salary will be $700 a month, but you only get paid if enough people start giving to your support. And I was engaged to Carrie. We were going to get married in a few months, and I had no idea how that was all going to come together. We were, of course, we were trusting God. We were praying fervently, but I really did not, on a human level, know how that would happen. So I'll never forget the day when the mail arrived, and there was a letter from a couple that Carrie knew a little bit, and I had never met. But they'd received my letter asking for prayer and financial supporters, and they had five children, three of them in college, and they understood how important campus ministry was in the lives of students. So they said, we're going we're gonna to support you, and a check has been sent to university. Well, a few days later, uh, well, this is before computers, okay? I mean, we're old, this, that's how old I am. So you couldn't just look and find out if people had given. But I got, I found out uh, by Pony Express or whatever we did back then, that a check had come in indeed, and it was for over one half of my entire first year budget from this one family. And as I tell you that story, the memory of my overwhelming sense of gratitude is still palpable. This couple, they've both gone on to be with the Lord, partnered with me and with many others in ministry over a lifetime, and made a huge investment in building God's kingdom. And today, the chapter that they helped begin at UC Santa Cruz is still there and thriving. So in a small way, I can relate to the Apostle Paul. He had planted the church in Ephesus. You can read about it if you want in Acts chapter 19. But it had been years since he'd been able to visit. And the church in Ephesus had grown and planted churches in the surrounding towns. And look at that map again. And now there were many more people all over this province of Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, that were followers of Jesus that Paul did not know. And so he writes to them these words. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Paul prays for them. Now, it's encouraging to know that you're being prayed for. And Paul was a man of prayer. Uh, he prayed all the time. He prayed when he was in prison. He prayed when he was traveling. And he prayed for people that he had come to know and those that he had, did not know. So let's see what he prays for these folks in Asia Minor. He says, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. Paul prays for the Holy Spirit to be given to them, to reveal to them divine wisdom so that they could know God better. So let's stop right there as we enter Paul's prayer and ask yourself this question, is that happening with me? Am I getting to know God better? We'll go on to a slide of John Calvin, and if you are a Presbyterian like me, although I'm not a real Presbyterian, my wife is a real Presbyterian because her grandfather was a Presbyterian pastor. 
but I'm a converted, I, I, I'm a convert to the Presbyterian faith, to the Reformed tradition. And this gentleman here, John Calvin, is the founder of our Reformed tradition. And he did a lot of stuff. He pastored a church in Geneva, Switzerland for many years. He encouraged, like the Apostle Paul, churches all over Europe to grow. And he also wrote a two-volume work called The Institutes of Christian Religion. And the opening verse, the opening lines, I say verses, but the opening lines of his book are the same in the first draft, which he wrote when he was 26, as they are in the final draft, which he wrote in his 50s. And this is what he said. Nearly all the wisdom which we possess, that is to say, true and sound wisdom, consists of two parts, the knowledge of God and of ourselves. But while joined by many bonds, which one proceeds and brings forth the other is not easy to discern. See, this is one of the major reasons why many people never really discover who they are at a deep level. They never learn what they can do and what incredible potential lies within them because they've never discovered who God is. We're made in God's image. We reflect God, and to really know ourselves, Calvin teaches, we have to know God better. Jesus wanted this so much. When he came to earth, he spent a lot of time praying for his disciples, but he also prayed in John 17 for those who would come to faith through the original 12. He prayed, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who believe in me through their message. And that's you, and that's me. And in that same prayer in chapter 17 of John, Jesus goes on, or Jesus begins and says, this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So this is the reason we exist, to know God better. It's a lifetime occupation. It, it, we never end in learning more about God. Dallas Willard says, the best physical, chemical, and other scientific knowledge will not tell us what to do and who to be. Only God can do that. Only the Holy Spirit can give us that kind of knowledge. So Paul prays for them. He doesn't know their circumstances. He can't pray for their daily problems and the pressures they're under, but he can pray that they may know God better. Let's get into what he prays. Verses 18 and 19. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, in his saints, and in his incomparably great power for us who believe. Now, when we say the words, oh yes, I see what you mean, you didn't see what they mean with your eyes. You saw it with your mind, with the eyes of your mind. But the Bible teaches that our hearts have eyes too. And Paul is praying that the eyes of their hearts may be enlightened. Now, why does he do that? Well, in the biblical understanding, the heart is the seat of our affections, our emotions. It's what actually moves us to change. We can study the Bible and read great Christian books for hours, for a lifetime, but head knowledge 
will only take us so far. And Paul understands this deeply. So he prays, of course, that they can grasp with their mind the great truths about God, about Jesus, about the Holy Spirit. But he wants it to not just enlighten their minds, but to move them and motivate them and change their hearts. And that's how we become vital believers, renewed, inwardly moved, because we have begun to feel the power and the wonder of the truth that we've been taught. So Paul prays for the eyes of their hearts and your heart and mine. He wants us to be deeply renewed, healed from the wounds of our past, inwardly transformed. You see, if knowledge is not just in our head but in our heart, it just changes how we understand knowing God or knowing anything. That's why music and the arts are so important because combined with the truth that enters our minds, music and the arts penetrate into our hearts and they move us to act on what we learn to be true about God and about ourselves. Jeremy Begbie teaches both in England and at Duke University in theology and music. He's a, a, an amazing musician, musicologist, as well as a theologian. And he writes, one of the primary services the arts can render to theology is their integrative power, their ability to interrelate the intellect with the other facets of the human makeup, to integrate mind and heart. Music and the arts are so important. This lovely painting by Carol Oust is moving to me. When I first walked in here on June 6th, I looked at it and I said, wow, there are the people of God gathered here in Boulder, living out their fellowship together. That moved me to see that. Because arts do that. Music does that. They move us in our hearts and they help us integrate what we know in our heads. Let's go back to that same that scripture again. Paul goes on in his prayer to explore the content of our knowledge of God. We need to know three specific things. First, the hope to which he has called us. Second, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And third, his incomparably great power. Those are the three truths that are at the heart of the content of Paul's prayer. Now, every human being wants their life to count for something. They want to make a difference. We call that leaving a legacy. And Paul teaches us that hope, inheritance, and power are the three ingredients which give our life purpose and which energize us to live out our calling in our families, our work, our neighborhood, our church, and our community. And the first ingredient is the hope to which we have been called. This is clearly in the Bible, the hope of being changed, of being transformed into the likeness of Christ, the hope of glory, the hope of resurrection. It's what keeps us going. That's what got me out of bed this morning, is the hope of resurrection. When we had our first grandchild nine years ago, it was a huge wake-up call to me. I couldn't believe in my 50s I was a grandfather. And now, these grandchildren, nine and seven, they come over to our house and maybe two hours into a visit, Carrie and I look at each other and we go, are we going to make it for the rest of the day? <laughs> See, our bodies don't bounce back the way they did when we were younger. 
And I remember, I have this vivid memory of my grandfather looking at me. You know, he had a lot more grandchildren than I have. And he was telling me, you know, someday that'll happen to you, what's happening to me. Hope tells me that God isn't done with me even as my body grows older, even as my energy isn't what it used to be in my youth. Hope tells me that God isn't done with me yet. There is so much he wants to accomplish in me and through me, and that's true for all of us. So don't lose hope. You're headed for hope. You're headed for an eternity with God, and that energizes you to live out in faith and love the teaching of Scripture. Now, the second ingredient is the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Now, when you hear the word inheritance, what do you think of? Well, if you're like me, the first thing I think of is I'm so grateful to my parents and Carrie's parents because they left us an inheritance. You know, it really helps, right? And we are thinking already about how we're going to be stewards of that with our children and in the kingdom of God. Inheritance certainly applies to inheriting wealth or money. But that's not what Paul's talking about. He's talking about the inheritance that we have in God. He is our inheritance. He is like a great bank account, of a great deposit of resources from which we draw strength and comfort, encouragement, correction, whatever we need as we face life in a fallen world. But Paul is specifically talking about God's inheritance in us, in the saints. The joy that enters our life when we live in the Spirit day by day. He goes on third to pray that you may know his incomparably great power. His incomparably great power. Now, did you know that when you became a Christian, you were given access to God's incomparable power? It came with the promised Holy Spirit. When we receive Jesus, we receive the spirit of love and grace and power. We have the power already. But what we need to understand, and I want to spend the rest of our time really drilling into this, how does that power, that divine power, actually work? Here's the example that Paul gives. That power is like the working of his mighty strength that he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him in his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but in the age to come. You see what he's saying? The resurrection of Jesus is the model of the power that we possess as believers. Now, when we read the Easter accounts and the Gospels, we often focus on the power that it must have taken for the angel to roll away the stone or the earthquake or the terror of the Roman guards as they realize that something has happened to the body of Jesus. But all of those things followed the resurrection. They were the results of the resurrection. They were not the resurrection itself. It didn't take those events to allow Jesus to be resurrected. He was already resurrected. His body was in the tomb, but then a miracle happened. His dead body left the grave clothes. He passed through the huge boulder blocking the tomb, and we read that he's just standing there in the garden. Mary thinks he's a gardener. And before anything else happens, 
power had occurred. Jesus was raised from the dead. See, the power of God almost all the time makes no great demonstration. It's quiet. We're so used to power being noisy that we don't even think that there can be power without noise. All right, this is uh, Valentine's Hardware Store. Uh, if you go to that spot on Pearl, I believe there's a haagen there now. But Warner, Anderson, Warner Andrews <laughs> told me a story about this hardware store that just illustrated for me what I'm trying to get across about power. Because the Greek word that Paul uses here is dunamis. We get the English word dynamite from it. Well, the people that own this uh, hardware store were longtime members of Grace Commons. Dick and Jane Barker. And Warner tells me that Jane passed away last year, and Dick is still alive and living at Fraser Meadows Memory Care. And I'm just going to pick it up, and this, these are Warner's words. Jane Valentine married Dick, and he ended up running the store for years and years until it shut down. Other older members of the church have told me stories about going into the basement to get a specialty part of some sort and seeing boxes of dynamite for sale at 10 cents a stick. Dick told me that they sold hardware, but really made their money as the dynamite dealer for the mines throughout Boulder County. Apparently, they had bunkers full of dynamite north of town, separated by berms, which you can still see today. And the store only had a few cases for the regular customers. Can you imagine walking into a hardware store and buying a stick of dynamite? What a scary thought. Warner goes on, he said the stuff was so powerful that if you handle it with bare hands and wipe the sweat off your forehead, you would get an immediate headache. So before McGuckins, which some refer to as Our Lady of Hardware, there was Valentine's. If you go to the public library, there are pictures of mule wagons in front of the store. That's not what Paul's talking about. Not that kind of power, not dynamite, okay? Dunamis is, is the word, but it means, it doesn't mean dynamite in Greek. It means power, and it has to be defined the way in the context, the way Paul defines it. This is power you don't feel in a, in a, in a normal way. You don't have any sense that it's happening often, but it's happening. Divine power has an unusual quality. You only experience the power of God when you begin to act in faith. When you begin to exercise the gifts that God has given you, then the power starts to flow. Not before. Then God will work through you to accomplish things beyond anything that you could ask or even imagine. You didn't feel the power. You don't suddenly feel strong or capable. No, you feel weak. When I woke up this morning, I felt weak. I have to tell you, I, there's something with the barometric pressure and the altitude. I just sort of felt weak. Paul says in another letter, God's power is made perfect in our weakness. So if you feel weak, if you feel inadequate, that's okay. That's the beginning point to begin to pray and to ask God to work his power in you and through you. It's so tragic to me that many people never discover what God really wants to do in their lives because 
They keep waiting to feel powerful before they act. You have to begin to act in faith. Now, let me give you a very mundane illustration. I just got a battery-operated toothbrush. And when you get the toothpaste on the toothbrush and you're ready to start brushing your teeth, you look on the thing and say, where's the power button? And there isn't one. But if you read the manual, it says just start putting it up against your teeth and it will start. Now that's a trivial example of how the power of God works, but that's really the way it works. It works when you reach out to somebody. It works when you sit down and exercise your leadership gift or comfort someone who needs comforting or confront someone who's taking the wrong course or to work out a conflict with a fellow believer or to forgive someone. It works when you expect the Holy Spirit to show up in your weakness and do things that you're not capable of doing in your own strength. That's when the power of God is unleashed. It works by faith. It works when you expect the Spirit to show up. It's beyond anything the earth can match. Unlike dynamite, there's no flash, there's no explosion. The power is already there. So we'll never find out what God can do until we begin to step out in faith and try something we can't do on our own. That's how we discover the great power that Paul is praying for the Ephesians to experience. So Paul prays that they will know the power of God, that they'll know the hope, and they'll know the riches of God's glorious inheritance. God is at work in the church in Ephesus, and God can be at work in this church. It's been happening for almost 150 years. And as we look forward to the future, let's pray that it will happen again. But you know what? It won't happen unless we all pray, Lord, use me, work through me, and begin to step out in faith. Well, here's some amazing things that the power of God can do in human lives and in a congregation like Grace Commons. Scripture tells us that it gives us the power to face our inner hurts and our fears. Now, there's nothing wrong with knowing our past and acknowledging our pain, but once you know the things that set you on a wrong path, we need to remember what Paul told the Philippians. We're to forget the things that are past and press on to embrace the future because we are new creatures in Christ Jesus. Second, it's the power to abandon destructive habits. A dear friend of mine is now in his 50s. For years, for decades, he struggled with his addiction to alcohol. When I got involved in his life, he he was in a bad place. And finally, one day, he was hospitalized after nearly drinking himself to death. So I went to visit him in the hospital, and I had no idea what to say. I felt so weak. I just prayed, Lord, what do I say? How do I help? I understood the power of alcohol addiction. There was just nothing that I had in my human toolbox to help him. But I prayed a lot for wisdom, and God led led me into a conversation with, uh, with his doctor. Uh, he had no family. 
he had really just alienated everyone in his life. So we found a wonderful resource, the Salvation Army, that had a year-long rehab program that you had to live in for. Very highly accountable, highly uh, psychologically, uh, physically powerful, and spiritually powerful. It's a wonderful program. The Salvation Army does this so well. After a year, he got a job and was able to move into uh, the next phase of his recovery. And today, he's been sober for 10 years. He's a sponsor for others in AA. And if he were here today, he would tell you that it was only by discovering the power of God that he was able to break the hold that addiction had on his life. Divine power is what broke the grip of alcoholism. Charles Wesley, the great Methodist hymn writer, in his hymn, writes these words. He breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. That's the power of God. It's a power that can restore broken relationships. It's a power that can bring healing between believers. It's a power that can change our lives and the lives of people around us. It's a power to help. It's a power to give us the ability to reach out to others in need. It's a power that we need. It's a power that Paul prays for us to have. Well, as Paul closes chapter 1 and, and finishes his prayer, He prays for the Ephesians. And he asks God to unleash in them the very power of God. This church is the community of God's holy people where God longs to unleash his power in us and through us. So it's my prayer, like Paul, that the eyes of your hearts would be opened, that you would understand the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and the incomparably great power which he has already given to you. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these truths about you, about your spirit. We thank you for the Apostle Paul, for his prayer for the Ephesians so long ago. Lord, will you answer that prayer in us? in us individually as we walk with you and in us as a congregation here in this community. Lord, we need your power to be unleashed, but we know that it begins with us. Help us to be people of faith each day, day after day after day, trusting in your power to be unleashed through us for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.